coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Bitcoin's creator has been found again. Hey, everybody, the media did it. We'll tell you what they think they know and what they don't know. Also, in patches we always trust? Maybe not. Security patches need to get a lot better. We'll discuss that. A bunch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 224 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on December 10th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go, go over to ScaleEngine.com and check it out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. It's good to see you again. I see you're rocking an IX system shirt. That's pretty sharp. Real nice. That's nice, Alan. That's nice. Hey, you know what, Alan? We have been, speaking of clothing, we have been a little negligent. You were kind of kicking my butt on the pre-show that uh, we have not been mentioning a couple of really cool swag opportunities that are going on right now for the JB audience and the TechSnap members can totally get in on this. So I'll start with what's expiring like this weekend. So if you want to move quick, that is there is a limited run of the Linux Action Show jacket, the hooded jacket with the zip up. It's nice. <clears throat> and uh, you can find it at teespring.com slash last US. Or if you're in the EU, it's teespring.com slash last EU. And there are several colors. This is a very nice, warm, comfortable, soft jacket. I've got a couple of these. I got a couple the last time we did a run. And uh, they've held up the entire time. And they're going to be running until the weekend at teespring.com slash last US and last EU. You can find a link on the JB website. So that's sort of last specific. But there's also some swag giveaways going on that TechSnap fans can get in on. In fact, uh, Sylvester just got sent the TechSnap swag mousepad. We have a brand new logo and look for TechSnap that's in the works for a while now. And that logo fits so amazingly on a mousepad. I mean, like that wasn't the plan, but it totally works, right? Look how good that is. And on top of that, we even have here in the studio uh, a JB Christmas tree, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, because actually each box really has legitimate swag uh, wrapped in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ange made up these uh, individual show ornaments. So there's the TechSnap ornament, which looks real sharp on there. There's a BSD Now ornament, which also looks real sharp. And uh, they even have great stuff on the back, like the TechSnap has the continued striped logo. BSD Now is the only place to BSD. So we're doing some really cool swag stuff for the holidays uh, and so to get in on the free swag that we're giving out, uh, like we just did it for Coda Radio, too, uh, you just have to be an active Patreon subscriber over at patreon.com slash today or the Unfilter patron. And you just have to have successful payment in November or December, I think, too, now, if this uh, keeps going as well as it is. Just have to have a successful payment in one of those two months. Uh, and it helps to also have your address in there so we can ship you the swag, which Patreon allows you to provide. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty fun. And you guys can see pictures at Instagram.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for some of the swag. It's been nice. I really like the tree. Mm-hmm. We got it here in the studio. Alan, you should get something. Maybe you, maybe maybe a little uh, Santa elf will ship you something for the holidays. Mm-hmm. You never know. Mm-hmm. All right. So enough about clothing and swag. We have a huge show to get into today. And our first story is not only massive, but it's currently developing Still, as we go on the air, but it's got some pretty solid uh, touchstone pieces that we can comment on and talk about. And uh, that is the possible uh, revealing 
of who really is Satoshi Nakamoto, the, the creator, supposedly, of Bitcoin. And now we've heard this before, but now it's coming from two different sources, and there may be a little fire to the smoke. Right, Alan? Yeah. Uh, this is the fifth time, I think, that somebody's tried to say yeah, they know who he is. A couple of big but public is, ones, but there's been, yeah, there's been, like, threats yeah, like of leaking his identity Newsweek online. Newsweek has tried it. and They and were the then, first you know, big one, yeah. Well, they just happened to find some guy whose na- legal name when he was born happened to be uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, and he yeah. changed his name later on. And they were like, and "Well, he's like, Asian, oh, good enough for him. us." Yeah, <laughs> he's a go. computer guy, and he, he is a computer guy, and he he used to have that name. So obviously, this is the guy. And it's like, no, <laughs> just now. It's like that just happens to be a coincidence. In fact, that guy. Uh, a lot of people are uh, are. Uh, are sort of referencing that guy because uh, he he was very he says his family was hurt mm-hmm. by the Newsweek article you know it, and he uh, he still tried he was trying to get some sort of I think I think he was trying to get some sort of lawsuit started mm-hmm. yeah so this has this has been a thing that's been going on and on but you know we got two different sources now Alan they've got all kinds of government documents this one seems to be a bit more plausible yeah but yeah since you know since the first Bitcoin code came out with the kind of pseudonymous name attached to it uh it's you know everybody's wondered well who invented this and what are they doing and what's going on and especially once bitcoins were worth lots of money it was like well this person has a lot of bitcoins what are they doing with them <laughs> right satoshi would be rich yeah uh you know it's, whoever they happen to be they appear to control a stash of bitcoins easily worth uh, some nine figure amount uh at the peak of uh bitcoins craziness in 2014 it would have been worth more than a billion dollars wow uh but uh last week wired has obtained the strongest evidence yet that they actually know who it is and wires evidence says it is craig stephen wright from australia um although uh, gizmodo did similar research uh, around the same time mm-hmm. and they think that it is actually two people the same craig stephen wright but also a friend of his uh, who is a computer engineer in the U.S. Uh, who actually died a few years ago and might explain the sudden, you know, all of a sudden uh, Nakamoto stopped communicating, right? And it's like, well, sometimes that's what happens when you yeah, die. Yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. You know what else yeah. is interesting about this is that two separate publications are doing investigations around the same time. And I submit to you that is not a coincidence. I was reading around on the Bitcoin subreddit. And it would appear that some of the documents that Wired and Gizmodo are citing were shopped on online uh, as, as recently as fall as, like, stolen documents that somebody mm-hmm. was trying to get some money for. And so maybe they bit and they bought them. Well, it seems that both, uh, I think even Gizmodo says, they didn't, you know, start off saying, oh, we should investigate this. It was, we got anonymous tips and then we got given documents. It's not clear whether they paid for them or not. Given, but- like all of the other documents Gizmodo's been given over the years. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, it seems like some documents that somebody says prove who uh, Nakamoto is uh, ended up in the hands of some journalists and they uh, ran with it. Um, it's quite a bit. Yeah. They say, yeah. Uh, quite so a bit yeah, they say, According to a cache of documents provided to Gizmodo, which were uh, corroborated in interviews with some people, uh, Craig Stephen Wright, who's an Australian businessman, but also holds a number of degrees and he's run quite a few different companies. And, and he's spoken at some Bitcoin forums. Yeah. Uh, who's from Sydney in Australia. And uh, Dave Kleinman, or Kleinman, uh, who's an American computer forensics expert, which again fits with the whole cryptocurrency thing. 
uh, but who died in 2013, were involved in development of the digital currency. Uh, so Wired kind of has a summary of what their evidence is, and they start uh, with originally some archived copies of the blog of the, the first guy, the Australian, uh, Craig Stephen Wright. Say, in August of 2008, a post on Wright's blog, months before the November 2008 introduction of the Bitcoin white paper that eventually resulted in the program and the protocol and so on, hmm. it mentions his intention to release a cryptocurrency paper and references a previous paper called Triple Entry Accounting from 2005, which was by a financial cryptographer uh, and kind of outlined some of the ideas that eventually Bitcoin became based on. Uh, a post on the same blog from November 2008 includes a request for readers who want to get in touch uh, with the author, uh, Craig Stephen Wright, to encrypt their messages using a GPG public key uh, that was apparently actually linked to uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. The key, when checked against the database at the MIT GPG key server, uh, is associated with the email address uh, satoshin at vistomail.com which is very similar to the address satoshi at vistomail.com, which was the one that was used on the original white paper. Oh, yeah. An archived copy of a now-deleted blog post from Wright's blog uh, dated January 10th of 2009, so a little bit after Bitcoin came out, but two months, uh, which was the beta of Bitcoin is live tomorrow. Uh, this is a decentralized, we try it until it works kind of thing. <laughs> uh, the post is dated January 10th, uh, which is the day after Bitcoin's official launch on January 9th. But uh, right living in Eastern Australia, when you do the time zone math, turns out that would have actually been uh, the 9th uh, earlier in the day because Australia is in the future. <laughs> uh, the post was later replaced with a rather cryptic text saying, uh, Bitcoin, a.k.a. bloody nosy, uh, uh, it goes, uh, it was always surprising me how at times the best place to hide is right in the open. That's a quote in there? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, sometime after October this year, that post was deleted entirely. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> uh, in addition to those three blog posts, uh, Wired received a cache of leaked emails, transcripts, and accounting forms oh. that corroborate the link between Wright and uh, Nakamoto. Int uh, interesting that the vernacular is, is leaked. Leaked documents. Yeah. That's 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 and a. It's like well, if you hack them and then give them away, that's leaking, right? Yeah, because I mean, they could say purchased, they could say stolen, they could say sold, they could say a lot of things. But leaked implies that somebody like generally generally journalists don't even say leaked. They just say these documents were disclosed. Right, but wouldn't a leak imply someone at the office where these documents originated from was the one to awesome. release them? That would that would be what uh, a leak would, would imply. And that would make sense for some of the ones that are apparently government documents, right? Mm -hmm. uh, another clue as to Wright's Bitcoin fortune uh, wasn't leaked to Wired, but instead remains hosted on the website of the corporate advisory firm McGrath Nicole. Uh, a liquidation report on one of several companies Wright founded, uh, known as Hotwire. Just funny because isn't Hotwire.com a hotel searching site? Yeah, but this didn't is it, wasn't thing. it also a file sharing service for a while back in the post Napster days? I don't know. Possibly, uh, but this Hotwire was an attempt to create a Bitcoin-based bank. It shows that the startup was backed in June of 2013 by 23 million dollars in bitcoins uh, owned by Wright. I think that's fairly telling. So uh, Wright tries to start a Bitcoin bank backed in Bitcoin. 
Well, yeah, basically the money he put up for it was I have these bitcoins and I'm using. That's a lot of bitcoins to have that early in the Bitcoin history. In 2013, I guess yes, that is a lot of bitcoins. You know, in 2014, that's not very many bitcoins. Hmm. I mean, that's that is just a that is probably during the GPU transition in mining. So he probably would have mined a lot of those on CPU. Yeah, back when the difficulty level was so low that was. Yeah, I mean, that would imply he was in very early. That would sort of line up with the 2009 numbers that we've been seeing kicked around. Even uh, after the collapse of the Bitcoin, that sum of Bitcoins would be worth $60 million today. (laughs) And Bitcoin's price has been kind of going up again. Yeah. Uh, and then separately, there's an article here from yesterday where uh, reported Bitcoin founder Craig Wright's home was raided by the Australian police uh, with at least 10 uniformed officers uh, invading his house. On Wednesday afternoon, police gained entry to a home belonging to Craig Wright, who had hours earlier been identified in investigations by Gizmodo and Wired as the founder of Bitcoin. Uh, people who say they know Wright have expressed strong doubts about his alleged role uh, with some saying privately they believe the publications have been the victim of an elaborate hoax. Uh, more than 10 police personnel arrived at the house in a Sydney suburb, uh, Gordon, at about 1.30 in the afternoon. Two police staff wearing white gloves could be seen from the street searching the cupboards and surfaces of the garage. At least three more were seen in the uh, from the front door. The Australian Federal Police said in a statement that the raids were not related to the Bitcoin claims from the magazines. The Australian Federal Police can confirm that it conducted search warrants to assist the Australian Taxation Office at a residence in Gordon and a business premise in Ride, Sydney. So apparently they also invaded his office. Uh, This matter is unrelated to recent media reports regarding the digital uh, currency Bitcoin. Yeah, unrelated. Unrelated. Taxes on the Bitcoin. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting that some of the documents that point him to Bitcoin came from the tax office? So Mm -hmm. that's an interesting connection there, too. But it's also interesting that they raid his house and go through his cupboards. It's like, are you looking for piles of money or yeah. something? The Guardian article goes into some interesting details. So not does, not only does the Guardian article kind of cast some doubt on the validity of some of the source material. In fact, the Guardian article almost suggests in some cases that perhaps uh, it's a hoax. And then they go on also to mention that he was just about to move to London. And they just happened to extend the lease at that house by a week. And then it got raided. So they were actually on their way to. They were on their way of moving out, right now. So uh, probably, the, I, that explains why the tax office would be in a hurry to raid the house and make sure he doesn't get away with anything. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, uh, the Guardian Australia tr- contacted the media number listed on Wright's companies and asked whether Wright was the founder of Bitcoin. The person who answered the phone hung up. <laughs> uh, the documents published by Gibmoto appear to show records of an interview with the Australian tax office surrounding his tax affairs in which his Bitcoin holdings were discussed at length. During the interview, the person the transcript names as Wright says, I did my best to try and hide the fact that I've been running Bitcoin since 2009, but I think it's uh, getting, by the end of this half of the year, most of the world is going to know. Huh. Um, although they point out there that running Bitcoin in that context could just mean that he was had computers mining running right mining. yeah it was right yeah okay doesn't necessarily mean he was running because you know bitcoin isn't run it's really decentralized right yeah unless you meant like running the project right uh australia uh, guardian australia has been unable to independently verify the authenticity of the transcripts published by gizmodo because uh they are apparently leaked documents from the australian tax office so uh or whether the transcript is an accurate reflection of the audio uh 
if the recorder, if the interview that it purports to be from actually ever took place. Hmm. It is also not clear whether the phrase running refers to merely the process of mining bitcoins using a computer. The Guardian points all that out, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the purported admission in the transcript does not state that Wright is the founder of Bitcoin, uh, but other me- emails that Gizmodo claim are from Wright suggest further involvement he may have had in the development of the Bitcoin protocols. The emails published by Bizmodo cannot be verified. Uh, comments that have been sought from uh, other people who have been contacted by Wright or his lawyer in relation to Bitcoin and its regulation and taxation status in Australia. A third email published by Gizmodo from 2008 attributes to Wright a comment uh, where he said, I have been working on a new form of electronic money called BitCash or Bitcoin. Hmm. Some back when maybe they hadn't even decided on a name for it yet. Hmm. And that's an email from Wright, which... We can, mm-hmm. We're kind well, of trusting... claims to be from right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Gizmodo was given a bunch of files that were apparently uh, stolen from his Outlook or something, so it's hard to say. Uh, so WikiLeaks on Twitter says, we assess that Craig Wright is unlikely to be the principal coder behind Bitcoin, uh, but that does definitely seems where Gizmodo's evidence of pointing to the computer security expert maybe writing most of the code, whereas Craig was maybe providing the money and, and the, yeah. the rest of it. Yeah, you do notice their wording specifically is the principal coder, as in yeah. maybe he was involved, but he wasn't the principal developer of it. And they're right. citing some papers he's released and things like that, I guess. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, so. Although, you know, if as soon as you dig into it a little bit more on the second guy uh, who died, it, it gets all kinds of weird. <laughs> and you get right into the regular conspiracy theory stuff. Um, so the other guy was a uh, former U.S. military, but... Uh, I forget if it says how, but he was been in a wheelchair since 1995, and became more and more of a you know computer security nut and reclusive and so on. Uh, but yes, he apparently died from infected bed sores and so on at home, and it seemed like he was destitute without money. But apparently, you know, he would have bitcoins worth hundreds of millions of dollars. That is, uh, if that is a true story, I would be a good story to be told. I would well, love if that. You, if you dig into the Gizmodo links some more, they have a bunch of stuff where there's like, you know, he was found surrounded by empty alcohol bottles and a gun, and there's bullet holes in his beds, but no sh- shell casings, and it's like all kinds of weird stuff. It was like, was it a stage suicide or what happened here? It was all really really weird when you get into it further. Either way, it seems Gizmodo and Wired worked their asses off on these pieces i mean these are well huge. after after what like four other major publications you know passed got egg on their face oh no, it's like wall street journal over, passed over, on the story they were they were also the documents were made available to them and they said that ah, doesn't look legit to us well it's just, uh if you look at i think it's the wired one originally they talk about you know before newsweek is like three other like i think the new york times has taken a swing at it before uh and you know all these times when there wasn't enough evidence or, you know, no matter how good it looked, you end up with egg on your face. Uh, I can see why a lot of papers would pass it up for now anyway. Although yeah. at the same time, it's, uh, if you really want to get into the weird stuff, it kind of reminds me of uh, I think the final season of or second to last season of The Newsroom, the TV show, where there's like this whole uh, conspiracy to get the news to report the U.S. used chemical weapons in Afghanistan or whatever. I don't know if you've seen the TV show. but No, not yet. Um, the one thing that uh, I also would like to know the backstory to is if one of the two uh, publications, Wired or Gizmodo, ended up having to publish early. I think it's Wired published first, so I'm guessing 
But I don't know if that was because, like, obviously they published almost immediately. Somebody after Wired got word of the other guy working on but, the same yeah, thing. So if Wired heard about it first, yeah. did they rush their work? Yeah. And then that forced Gizmodo to publish before right. they're actually ready. Yeah, I'm just curious to know the backstory there because that's got to be a good story. Mm-hmm. If anybody out there ends up hearing that story, uh, link yeah, it up in the, the The reason they both end up working on it isn't so much that a coincidence as they both got handed a bunch of information. Right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> all right. But it's interesting that they came to slightly different conclusions if they were actually given all the same files. Yeah, that is interesting. Because only Gizmodo seemed to say it seems there was a second person who was involved. I, I like the two-person theory. It makes a little bit more sense and helps break down, you know, the... Uh, WikiLeaks uh, yeah, saying that you yeah. know that this guy's a little bit more of a business guy. He has a bunch of degrees and stuff, but he doesn't seem to have a history of writing code to the quality that you would need for the way Bitcoin did. You know, that's not going to be somebody's first programming project, right? Uh, but you know, he does have a bunch of degrees, and it seems maybe was definitely very involved in writing the paper. So I'd also like to know how much they paid for uh, this data. Because mm-hmm. you know, you know, one or of, was it the fact that it was shopped around for you know it's been shopped around for quite a while. Maybe they eventually decided that well, no one's going to buy it. So I don't. It's hard know. to say if it's legit. I bet they made some money, right? Because uh, you could always tease them with the little taste. You know, here's a little bit of information. Now pay us for the rest of the bundle, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Although you would hope that the newspaper would be smart enough to be like, you know, we'll give you this much, and then after we've gone through it all and actually decide, we'll mm-hmm. pay more. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? Well, if anybody ever hears a backstory, link it up in the subreddit. Alan, I want to take a minute and tell you about our friends over at Ting. It's really mobile that makes sense, and it's a great time to switch. Even as a gift for the holidays, Ting is actually a possibility because it's a flat $6 for the line, and then you just pay for your usage. So this makes it actually reasonable to give Ting for the holidays or switch over now and start saving all throughout 2016. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get $25 off your first device, or if you have a Ting-compatible device, and you might because they got GSM and CDMA networks, then they'll give you $25 in service credit. They've also got some really great prices on devices, like there's like their SIM for their CDMA or GSM networks, or feature phones, all the way up to the greatest and latest Android smartphones. One of the things that I really appreciate is the Ting blog. As a cord cutter, I find this to be a great resource. Uh, they have Christmas stuff for cord cutters, and it's like uh, all the different online streaming services... That by the way, they also have. So this is a Christmas specific one. They also have Ting's totally uh, non-offensive, non-specific, non-denominational, super inclusive wintertime holiday themed event too. So they uh, everybody's included, but they do have one specifically for Christmas, where they go and list out all the different resources to stream different Christmas classics online. If you don't have uh, cable, uh, where you can go to find all the different yeah, and they even did some sleuthing on YouTube and found a few things on YouTube that are are pretty cool. So uh, they have that up on the Ting blog. And if, if you want to just read that, you could just help the show out by first going to techsnap.ting.com and then clicking over to the Ting blog. And also try their savings calculator while you're there just, mm-hmm. just out of curiosity's sake. I'd be really curious how much you would save. Go to techsnap.ting.com and then go check out their uh, non-denominational uh, holiday-themed event that's going on uh, between uh, Wednesday, December 9th. So that's already in progress. And it's wrapping up December 14th. Ooh, extra $15 in activation credit, you guys. Oh, the Nexus 5 refurb, $179. So get the Nexus 5, get a a pure Google experience, $179, no contract, unlocked. You only pay for what you use, flat $6 for the phone line. Ooh, shoot, same thing. Look at that, S6, 
32 gigabyte black or white, 559 completely yours. You own it. No restrictions, mm-hmm. no contracts, no sneaky payments. They've also got refurbished iPhones and flip phones. You can find out more on the Ting blog. It's a great time to check out Ting also while you're there. Read their new Consumer Reports annual cell phone service report. It's out, and Ting did incredible. Find it all by going to techsnap.ting.com. That's techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Some really great sales going on right now for just a little bit longer. Alan, there is one thing, one mantra we have on this show almost since the very beginning, and that is patch your S. So in some mm-hmm. ways you could say in patches we trust here on the TechSnap program. Uh, but uh, it's sometimes a little hard to trust software updates. And I like this piece you found over at ZDNet by, uh, I think it was mm-hmm. Z- Zach Whitetalker, I think is his name. <laughs> he, did a, he did a good. So tell us about it, Alan. Yeah, so how long do you put off restarting your computer, phone, tablet, or whatever for the sake of security updates or software <laughs> patches? Uh, all too often, it's a long time. You know, I know it's even this computer I'm sitting at only got the security updates installed because I happened to want to reboot it, and I was like, well, get these out of the way. Right, exactly. Uh, Same upstairs but, you know, for me. Even on my phone, I've, the Android update is sat there for three or four days sometimes. It's like, well, I need my phone. I don't want something to happen to it or... You know, I can't have the 20 minutes where I might not get the phone call because the software update's installing and it's rebooting. And Right, and of course, you, know, after you don't the really... Nexus reboots for the updates, it has to go through every application and re-optimize You it. don't really think about it when until you go to need your, you go to pick up your phone and you need it. And then you realize, oh, yeah, and just, oh, I can't do that right now. Yeah. That's a constant problem. And, and also, I also am, I, I feel like I'm constantly running a science experiment. How long, uh, how long can I run and what kind of performance degradation will I see? Because always, I always feel like that's a benchmark of how good the software is, is can I run it for a month and it feels like it's still a fresh boot? And I, I like to push the limits there. And so that means not rebooting sometimes for a really dumb reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of not rebooting for dumb reasons, I have a machine that's been sitting <laughs> in a data center. Uh, for a while, and now has reached an uptime of 1,826 oh! days. <laughs> yeah. Although it will likely not get to make it to 2,000. Oh. You have after, plans? After 2,000 days, we might not be in that data center anymore. Wow, though. That is still pretty dang impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have a few things that I just run for as long as possible, but eventually something tends to, like a power outage or something, tends to knock it out. Right. But even then, you don't necessarily get the updates installed. You know, it's that kind of a reboot. Right? Mm-hmm. 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 So reasons that you might delay the reboot or the installing of the updates is, you know, I'm in the middle of something. I don't want that happening right now or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, when it pops up, that's usually what it's, you know, uh, on my computer is worse on this one. The uh, GX UX or whatever, the, the one that pops up the Windows 10 thing. Just crashes on on my Windows Seven machine. Oh, that's annoying. On the rest of the machines in my house, it pops up and annoys me. On this one, like every time the screensaver comes on, whatever, I come back to the machine and it's crashed the the Windows update to Windows Ten. That is want. not a good experience at all. Who wants that? I've not seen that for anybody else. I don't know what is special about my computer. But, <laughs> Your uh, machine is preemptively rejecting Windows Ten, Alan. For sure. Uh, I, I don't think I will ever go to Windows Ten. Really? Just give up gaming and. Do it all you know, you know what's getting almost there is Star Wars: Old Republic under Wine, uh, and you know what's totally legit. Like I've been playing it for months without issue now. Is Snow under Wine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's getting there. Star Wars is the only game I play anymore. Yeah, and it's it's not perfect, but it's uh, it's doable. It's it's doable now. 
might have to do that. I know. <laughs> uh, so yeah, reasons I might not install updates. I'm in the middle of something and I don't want to do it right now. Uh, the update might break something, so I'd rather wait, right? Yeah. Uh, I can't waste a bunch of time dealing with it if it doesn't work, right? Like the worst one is like, oh, I should update all the packages on in my PCBSD install on my laptop, but I'm going to, I'm flying out to another country tomorrow, so let's not do that right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, which is really especially bad for my laptop because I almost only use that laptop when I'm going to a conference, and so unless I'm thinking like a week ahead mm-hmm. of the conference mm-hmm. to install the updates and make sure everything works <laughs> yeah. before I leave, yeah. then I pretty much just don't because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, I don't have the time to deal with it if something does go wrong. Right. Or on my Android, it was, I hate when they move buttons around on me and stuff. I think that's one of the big reasons people don't install their phone updates. Yeah. But that's especially for major updates. But that was my first annoyance with moving from the old Nexus device to the new one. Is like, oh, you know the mail app? We get rid of that. You have mm-hmm. to use Gmail. Yeah. It's like, oh, so now I have to go find a different mail. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, you know the gallery app where all your photos are? That's kind of integrated into Google Photo now. And so yeah. they're not separate things anymore. <laughs> and so You don't I'm mind, just, though. By the yeah. way, it has this great new cloud component. Uh, mindset to not back up the photos. Yeah. But I don't I'm sure mostly no other data goes up to their servers from it, I'm sure. Well, mine's mostly just a battery. I don't care about anything else. Yeah. I don't take you know what? And here's what I hate about it is Google Photos is genuinely really good. Mm-hmm. It is, and it is not just like a good photo backup, but it is like a freakishly good photo search. So I can I can go search for pictures of Dylan with me, pictures of Dylan with me trying to walk for the first time. How does Google know he's trying to walk for the first time? Right. But I can actually put that in the search, and it finds all those pictures. Or I can say pictures of just Dylan trying to walk for the first time. And it is, it is amazing, Alan. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, so yeah, Google Photos yeah. is it is a good service, but in the in one sense, it is a huge like. I remember that transition was a big deal for a lot of users. Um, and well, the the reason that was fresh in my mind was that yesterday I was trying to help someone with their phone, mm. and they have an older version of Android mm-hmm. where they're still separate things. Yeah. Yep. So they had gotten a message over MMS or whatever, and they wanted to save it onto the phone so it would be in their photo gallery thing. Yeah. And so I saved it, and then when I went to open Google Photo, they're like, no, no, I don't use Google Photo. I, it's, I have gallery. Gallery, yeah. So they have oh, both on there. That which doesn't is... exist anymore. Right. But yep. your phone is old. It doesn't, hasn't moved. Mm-hmm. That is a big problem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when somebody in the chat room mentions they like to have each mail account in a different app. Yes. yes, uh, yes. That's basically what I had is I had the, the Android mail app had – my scale engine account mm-hmm. and then the gmail is i use my gmail for the show and stuff right mm-hmm. it's not that's how i do it on, on ios things on a- where i would need to keep it specifically to me yeah. forever yeah yeah that's how i do it so ios has a pretty decent built-in mail program and i use that for one account and i use gmail for another account and uh, although i for my uh on Android now, I use K9, K9. Yep. because it has uh, GPG support, which mm-hmm. I need for my FreeBSD email. Mm-hmm. K9 is great. Yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's several mail and it, clients It does now. handle the multiple accounts well because it does them separately. It doesn't make yeah. one unified inbox. You, there is a way to do I that do in Gmail unify, too, I think. Right. I, I do unify my inbox on my desktop, mm-hmm. although I, have, I can click to use separate ones. Mm-hmm. But on my phone, I definitely want them separate because usually on my, I don't use my phone for email normally. Yeah, but right. If I'm Maybe at a to read. Or something, I'll do it. Yeah. I'm looking for very specific emails. It's like, are there any important new emails for Scale Engine? Or has anyone from FreeBSD this morning sent me an email saying we're going for breakfast at this place or something? Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. So, anyway, 
So that's another big reason why people don't install the other, updates. The other big one is that you know the device might be unusable for twenty minutes while it does it. Whether it's yeah. Windows updates where the updates won't work if you open some other programs, or where you know after you reboot it takes all the time during startup or mm-hmm. during shutdown to optimize. I hate when it does it during shutdown when I'm trying to shut down my laptop because you know I'm getting on an airplane or where the airplane is landing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which is why I like you know a system where I have complete control like BSD. But anyway. Lots of reasons why you might delay installing updates. Moving on. Uh, so they have a nice quote here. Patches are good for you. According to Homeland Security's Cyber Emergency Unit, or CERT, uh, as many as 85% of all targeted attacks could be prevented if people had just installed the available security patches. Mm, not Almost much all incidences of compromise are using a, a flaw that a patch exists for and you just didn't install it. Right? Uh the problem is that far too many have experienced a case where a patch has gone disastrously wrong. It's not just a problem for the device owner short term. It's a lasting trust issue with software giants and device makers, right? Every time, you know, oh, I upgraded the version of Android. And now my phone's super slow. Hmm. Or, you know, I did this. I remember uh, my girlfriend's phone. She installed an Apple update and it got a certain percentage of the way through and hung and just wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And she was afraid to reboot it because it's half installed update. Yeah, that could be dangerous. All kinds of stuff. It was like, did I just brick my iPhone? It's like, no. <laughs> but, you know, that would make somebody cautious. And we've all seen examples of bad patches. Or there's and, been like iOS updates that like break LTE. There was an update that did that one yeah, time. They, they just, yeah, right here. Apple iOS 8.0.1 was meant to fix some initial problems with Apple's new uh, eighth generation iOS, but completely broke cell phone service on affected phones, leaving millions stranded until a fix was issued a day later. Yeah. And you also obviously couldn't get it over the air either. <laughs> Right. Uh, Google's had to patch the so-called stage fright flaw in uh, Android, which affected many Android devices, but they had to do it a second time because the first fix didn't fix it all. Right. So you install an update, think you're all fine, and, oh, look, there's another update. Mm-hmm. And especially in that case, it can be confusing. It's, oh, I already have that update. It's like, actually, no, it's different. Or, you know, uh, the most alarming one is, meanwhile, Microsoft has seen more patch recalls in the last two years than the previous 10 years. Yeah, you don't often think about That's patch scary. recalls. It's like you you hear about a lot of places that are like, ah, oh, we wait a little while after the patch comes out before we install it, so that you know the recall can happen and the the good patch can be placed before we get mm-hmm. suck it up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, you really shouldn't do that though. But then you know you see that Microsoft's been trending up on recalls, not down. It's mm. like, ah, yeah. Uh, you know, they say Microsoft, for example, has issued 135 security bulletins so far this year with uh, thousands of separate vulnerabilities patched across those bulletins. Uh, all it takes is one or two patches to fail or break something, which has happened, to account for a 1% or 2% failure rate, yeah. which is a lot. You know? And, if, and if, generally, if, if it's on a that, server, uh, that's a pretty, you know, it's going to be somebody's critical infrastructure. Yeah, and usually when a patch doesn't work, it's uh, not a small thing that stops working. It's like everything. Uh, you know, if you want to be scared by the math, uh, Google, you know, when 99.9% isn't good enough. You know, if 99.9% was good enough, this is how many pieces of luggage would be lost at airports every day. Uh-huh. It's like, you think airports are pretty bad, but then you look at the number and it's like 99.999997 or what is it? It's like, wow, they actually do pretty good, it turns out. Uh, but even that doesn't seem good enough when you're the user, right? Uh, but also the other big one that I've seen a lot is update fatigue. 
right? Oh, yeah, every yeah. Every time you sit down to use your computer, there's a new update for Java, Flash, Chrome, Skype, Windows. And you whatever. can quickly fall behind, and then it's just yeah, you're too far behind. Like, you know, I've, my dad's complained about this. I'm like, oh, you have Java updates. Why haven't you installed that? And he's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Every time I, I install it, when I reboot, it just has another one. So, yeah. Well, Oracle's transitioned Java to be a little less frequent, but that's yeah, it's help. it's still like you know you you don't you don't why you don't remember when it doesn't prompt you right you yeah. remember when it prompts you so exactly. <laughs> you don't remember that you haven't been prompted for three weeks right exactly uh, and the other one is you know uh, that's why Microsoft did Patch Tuesday because mm-hmm. if they had done 135 advisories just randomly spread out through the year that would be like oh. Update from Microsoft tomorrow. Update from Microsoft next day. Update from Microsoft. And then a couple of days off, and then another one. It's yeah, like, not to like every three days there would be an update from Microsoft. Not to belabor the point of why people don't update, but I also will point out that uh, can be a limitation of bandwidth too. You know, you can have bandwidth caps. You can have uh, yeah, and some of the wi- patches wireless. So it, there's a lot of reasons. It's it's kind of nuts. I'm amazed to as many people update as they do, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> well, and so if you think just those core things, like, you know, Java, Flash, your browser, Skype, Windows, et cetera, are enough to give somebody update fatigue, because it really is, then how many driver and other programs you have now have their own little update utilities, right? It's like, oh, your printer driver. Oh, the Logitech webcam driver. Oh, your Razer mouse driver. It's like every device on your computer now has a little utility that wants to sit there and run and nag you about updates. You're making right? the case for a package manager, Alan. Well, and then, you know, Lenovo and Dell try to bundle their update managers as package managers for all your drivers yeah. and all these applications. Yeah. But, you know, Lenovo and Dell both have to release emergency patches for their update managers because they make your system more vulnerable to attack. Yeah, well, they're just going to make it easier to spy on you. But really, an up to, even a package manager, you're still going to get the same frequency of annoying update requests. It's just going to be from the same program instead of a bunch of different icons, right? Yes, yes. It yeah. doesn't actually help that much. doesn't help the fact that you constantly have something to do. Right. Uh, and that your computer wants to restart every five minutes. Uh, you know, having a slew of different programs constantly nagging the user about updating just causes the user to stop updating everything or to put the updates off longer and longer every time. And they say, at the heart of any software update is a trust relationship between the user and the company. Uh, when things go wrong, it affects thousands or millions of users. Just ignoring the issue and pulling patches can undermine the user's trust, which can damage the future of the patching process. Uh, customers don't always expect vendors to be 100% perfect 100% of the time, or at least they shouldn't expect that. Uh, however, if vendors are upfront and honest about the situation and provide actionable guidance for when things do go wrong, like a workaround to, and so on, mm-hmm. it goes a long way to establishing the trust that you know has been lost over the years. And you know, if you just provide this bit for people, then it definitely makes things go a lot further and make sure your software isn't the next one that gets hacked. Yeah. And we see some vendors are more successful than other vendors at it. And then you have folks like Google with the Chromebooks who take a really super aggressive approach to updates, which seems to be working really well for them. Right. But then, you know, they actually mentioned that as well. The companies that have like a backdoor so they can update without well, even yeah. asking you. Yeah. And, you know, that's not turning out very well either. That's not but a super ideal, no. Can you imagine now, you know, we've talked about routers being problematic for this. All of a sudden, you're, when, you, when you get, you know, your new... D-Link router, it comes with software on a USB stick or something you install on your computer, they'll do the firmware of it. So all of a sudden you're getting a nag on your computer to update your router. 
Yeah, doesn't uh, Google have a router now that you can get that they do auto-update? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So? Think, uh, somebody else has one too. But yeah, Google's is it's the start of something bigger that they haven't really talked about yet. <laughs> oh. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on this story, Mr. Jude? Uh, nope, that's about it for that one. I'll tell you about something then. How about DigitalOcean? This is a place you can go spin up your own super fast rig on their cloud infrastructure. It's all SSDs, KVM virtualizers, 40 gigabit E connections to the internet, and some really great data centers. And if you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. You can try out their $5 rig two months for free. Remember, what? Yeah, oh my goodness, it's a $5 rig. Legitimately, you can deploy a DigitalOcean server for $5 a month. They'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, one terabyte of transfer up in there, and they've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and brand new one near Mr. Jude Mm -hmm. in Toronto. I wonder if you could ever get in there. That'd be pretty cool, Alan. They have a great interface. Super smooth. They make it super easy to go to deploy your own FreeBSD server. You've been hearing Mr. Jude there talk about FreeBSD. Now you could actually go try it on a DigitalOcean droplet, and you could try it out two months absolutely for free. They also have tons of great Linux distributions to choose from, and they have one-click deployments of really good open-source applications. CoreOS is a pretty interesting distro that tries to solve a few problems. Tried and true Debian, CentOS, of course, Ubuntu and Fedora. All up on DigitalOcean, ready to go, super current, modern versions. Just use our promo code SNAPOcean. You get the $10 credit. You try it out two months for free. Also, check out their community page. They got great tutorials, great open source applications that take, uh, that take advantage of their uh, API, which is really well documented, so you can too. I love all of this. Look at this stuff. The floating IP stuff is really cool too. You can go check out how to yes. create a high availability setup with that. Uh, nice. So, not officially announced anywhere. Uh, or anything, but with some insider knowledge, uh, they might be working on uh, tunneling and like VXLAN type systems so that your floating IPs could go between data centers. Whoa, that would. Jeez. Is that a little like, would you hear like That's a rumor now? Definitely there not official. It's just yeah, they've so, been working on some there's things. There's a rumor. And, there's a rumor. Yeah. Rumor going around. So go to digitalocean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean, and see why we've been talking about them for all of 2015. We think they're great, and you will too. SNAPOcean gives you $10 credit and supports the show. You just go apply it to your account, and you can try it out. SNAPOcean, digitalocean.com. And thanks, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So when you say apt, I think the Debian package management system. But that's not actually what you mean. You mean advanced persistent threat. And we got a new kid on the block, don't we, Alan? Uh, well, not actually that new, but newly discovered. Right. Yes. Better put. Yes. So uh, an APT group has been identified. Uh, Kaspersky calls them Sophacy, but one of the other groups <laughs> calls them Fancy Bear. I, I like Fancy Bear a lot. I wasn't going to try to say Sophacy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they've also known as, yeah, so Sophacy is also known as Fancy Bear, Sednit, Strontium, or APT28. That's another easy one for me. Uninspired. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, easy. Is an advanced uh, threat group that has been active since about 2008 and targets mostly military and government entities worldwide with a focus on NATO countries. More recently, they've also seen an increase in uh, activity targeting the Ukraine. So back in 2011, 2012, the group used a relatively tiny implant known as Sophocy or Sourface. Mm. <laughs> As its uh, first stage malware, so that would get into the machine and then they would use that to install a backdoor that would let them take over the machine. Uh, the implant uh, shared certain similarities with the old Miniduke implants that we talked about previously. 
this led conspiracy oh, yeah, yeah. to believe that the two groups were connected, or at least uh, they were originally. Although it appears that they actually forked and kind of went two different ways in about 2014, with the original Mini Duke group switching to the new Cosmic Duke implant, which again, we've talked about the Cosmic Duke stuff previously. Uh, in the months leading up to August of this year, the Sophocy group launched several waves of attacks relying on zero-day exploits in Microsoft Office, Oracle Java, Adobe Flash Player, and Windows itself. So they had a whole slew of zero days to work with. Yeah, sounds like a picket, like so a buffet pickings. Uh, yeah, they obviously have a good source of zero days or are really good at finding those and doing security research. Uh, for instance, they have this... Jeez. Uh, it's pronounced... J-H-U-H-U-G-I-T. So maybe get is in there? Is there... Uh, it's, it's pronounced Jukesku. Oh. Uh, if you see further down in the points. Oh, uh, I, oh yeah. Okay. Oh, no, wow. sorry. That's more recently Jukesku. Okay. I thought that was how you pronounced it. Never mind. It's separate. But yeah. Jehugahugit. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> that is what it that says. That <laughs> was delivered uh, through a Flash throw day and used a Windows EOP exploit to break out of the Flash sandbox. That implant uh, became a relatively popular first stage for the Sophocy attacks and was used again uh, with a Java Zero Day instead of a Flash Zero Day in July of 2015. Uh, well, that and Jakuski uh, implants used uh, in most of the Sophocy attacks, high-profile victims uh, are being targeted with a different first-level implant representing the latest evolution of the Azzy Trojan. So this shows how the APD attackers constantly evolve to use newer things to avoid detection and so on, but also how they reserve their very best exploits and implants for use against the higher profile targets, right? So while they're active all the time, you know, doing reconnaissance and breaking into stuff and, and stealing stuff, they save their very best stuff for when they can, when they're going after like a government or something. Reminds me of what we read in the Snowden leaks about the way the NSA does it. Sort of like they save their best stuff, so and and they don't expose it. You know, they make sure yeah, people don't see exactly. it. Exactly. So that their very best attack is sitting there waiting for when they need it to for some high profile target, so that it's the first time it's ever been seen. Yeah. Uh, huh. And because they don't want it, uh, you know, they use the lower quality exploits against lesser targets to avoid the better exploits being discovered or mitigated, right? So that no virus scanner's ever seen this new right. exploit. It's unknown until they're actually using it against somebody big. It's like hiding their big weapon. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you don't use your super secret submarine to take out yeah. some little thing. You save it for when you need it. You don't build the A-bomb out in the open like an animal. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Uh, the first version of the new ASI implant appeared in August of this year during a high-profile incident that Kaspersky investigated. Our product successfully detected and blocked uh, the standard Sophocy ASI sample that was used uh, to target a range of defense contractors. So the first version they tried, uh, Kaspersky's virus scanner detected it and blocked it, and it was fine. Interestingly, the fact that the attack was blocked didn't appear to stop the Sophocy team. Oh. Just an hour and a half later, they compiled and delivered another ASI X64 backdoor. Uh, this was no longer detectable with st static signatures by the Kaspersky product. However, it was detected by, uh, dynamically by the host intrusion prevention uh, subsystem when it appeared that the system... Uh, and when they tried to execute. Mm. So an IDS so, kicked in and caught it. Uh, yeah, so this was a host-based one. So, uh, so it hits. It shows the <laughs> importance of uh, defense in depth, right? Yes. You're not just relying on the virus scanner. It's like 
if it makes it past the virus scanner, then it has to make it past this and this and this to get there. But because first he says, this recurring, blindingly flash sophistry attack attracted our attention as neither of the two samples was delivered through a zero-day vulnerability. Instead, they appeared to be downloaded and installed by other malware already on the machine. This separate malware was installed by an unknown attack and was installed in AppData Local Microsoft Windows MS Dell Temp DLL. Uh, pin it on Dell. Yeah, so they actually hadn't even figured out how the first bit of malware got on the system that then downloaded these other malware. So it's possible that it was a zero day or some other one that they just haven't figured out yet. Um, but the interesting thing also there is that. So they blocked the sample they had seen before, but within an hour and a half, the bad guys had come up with a completely new version of it to use against this target. So it's obviously a fairly high-profile target. Yeah, and they're moving quick. If we're going to sit there, spend an hour and a half to make up some new malware just to use it against you. Yeah, like they are are well-resourced and ready to go. Right, well, so it seems, you know, Kaspersky's doing forensics on this, so it's not like... Kaspersky saw and had that 90 minutes to react. It's like after the fact, they figured, oh, look, we blocked them. And then 90 minutes later, they managed to get in anyway. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So the attackers have multiple levels of malware and can cycle through them uh, until something works, right? So they try start trying their oldest, worst malware and then keep ratcheting their it up. Their least valuable malware. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then they use it to drop a payload that matches the quality of the target. So once they get in... Then they decide, oh, we'll just use one of our, our, you know, easy, cheap, older Trojans. Or, you know, this is the government. We don't want them to know we were ever here. So we use our best one. Uh, so in addition to the new ASI backdoor with the side-loaded DDLL for command and control, we reserved a new set of data theft modules deployed against victims of this office group. Among the most popular modern defenses against APTs are air gaps, right? Completely isolated network segments that have no access to the Internet because then people can't get into the machines to steal the stuff. However, those isolated network segments uh, without internet access where you store the sensitive data, you usually have to use a USB stick or something and sneaker net data back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the past, we've seen such groups like Equation or Flame use malware to steal data from uh, air gap networks. The Sophocy group used uh, such a tool as well. The first version of these is a new USB stealer module, which first appeared in February of 2015. And the latest appears to have been compiled in May of 2015. The data theft module appears to have been uh, built in May of 2015 and designed to watch removal devices and collect files from them, uh, depending on a set of rules defined by the attacker. So in order to increase the chance that they won't get caught, they don't put the malware on the USB stick and try to infect the machines in the air gap network because hopefully they'll have you know, USB auto run turned off and so on. Uh, instead, what they'll do is wait until the USB stick with the secret data is plugged back in to the internet-connected infected machine and then steal all the files off of it. Uh, so it'll collect all the files, and you know, depending on a set of rules defined by the attacker, it'll do different things with them. The stolen data is copied to a directory hidden in percent my pictures percent to make <laughs> it look like a system folder, and then it uses the uh, volume serial number of the USB stick so that if it's two different USB sticks, it'll keep the files separate. But if it's the same re- USB stick reused, it'll update the original copy, right? Uh, from where it can then be exfiltrated by the attacker using one of the other ASI implants that provides a data stealer. Ah. Uh, so that they can try to make it out uh, without the 
you know, a lot of networks now have data exfiltration filters, right? So they'll, they have like a kind of like a virus definition, but for the, you know, you tell your firewall about your secrets. And so if it sees anything with a bit of your secret in a message that's going out, it blocks it and says, no, you can't be sending your secrets outside of the network, right? Uh, and so they use various techniques to get the data out as well. Uh, they actually have, uh, if you want more detail on the USB Steeler Trojan part of it, uh, they have, if you go to the technical analysis section of the original post at the top, it has all the details. But they say, over the last year, the Sophocy Group has increased its activity almost tenfold when compared to previous years. So they're kind of out of stealth mode at this point. Uh, because one of the, uh, they've become one of the most prolific, agile, and dynamic threat actors in the arena. The activity spiked in July of 2015 when the group dropped two completely new exploits, one for Office and one for Java. Uh, at the beginning of August, Sophocy uh, began a new wave of attacks focused on defense-related targets. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going after defense contractors and uh, the government sides of it and bases and so on. As of November 2015, uh, the waves of attacks is still ongoing. Detectors deploy a rare modification of the ASI backdoor, which is used for the initial reconnaissance to figure out about the network. Once a foothold is established, they try to upload uh, more backdoors, USB stealers, and other hacking tools like uh, Mimikatz in order to achieve lateral movement. Lateral movement is a fancier term for island hopping. I was going to say, that's island hopping. <laughs> I like lateral it's movement, just, I guess, but island yes. hopping feels like you're, 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 cha- you're, you're moving from one challenge to the next. Lateral yeah, movement but, feels like you just got on there and go, Nyeh. Right. Well, lateral movement is slightly more military type term. And basically, it means instead of digging deeper into the network, you just go sideways and, you know, envelop the enemy or, or see what else you can find at the same level of depth that you're currently at. Uh, so, yeah. So, lateral island hopping in, implies that you're trying to get deeper and deeper in the network, whereas lateral movement kind of means you're staying in the level of access you have but seeing what else is there, right? So it's not necessarily trying to get into yeah, okay. the air gap network yeah. but just everything else on the network you've already breached. But they basically mean the same thing. Uh, they say the two recurring characteristics of the Sophocy group uh, that we're seeing in attacks are the speed and the use of multiple backdoor packages uh, for extreme resiliency. So in the past, the group has used droppers to install both the spell and as the backdoors on the same machine, so if one of those backdoors gets removed or detected, they still have the other one with which to get in and install a replacement for the one that gets taken out. You know, so they're making sure they have persistent access, right? They're they're really strong in the persistence, which is interesting because when we got the report with the kind of predictions of what 2016 will look like, we said that APTs will probably scale back as more people. Uh, as the focus becomes more and more on not getting caught, you're not going to want to stay in the network. You're going to want to be able to just get back in every so often because the less time you spend in the network, the less chance you have to get detected, right? So instead of having persistence and being able to go in constantly, it'll be about just, you know, locking the door back on their way out, mm. you know? Mm. After you break in once, you just install a back door. So some way you can get back in with less chance of being detected. And it, you know, it of course, of course, there's going to be sophisticated ways to do this because if if air gaps become the response to the risk of being connected to a network, if the targets are valuable enough, there's going to have to be responses developed yep. to that. And yeah, and then all of a sudden you got those with the, the inaudible tones coming out of the speakers, right. and then recording them. Yes, yes, 
Yeah. And then next thing you know, you get Stuxnet. <laughs> yeah. So as usual, the best defense against targeted attacks is a multi-layered approach. Combine traditional anti-malware techniques uh, with patch management, which is important, host intrusion detection and network intrusion detection, and ideally whitelisting and default deny strategies. So those are the big ones, right? We, we, uh, they actually specifically mentioned that um, uh, report from the Australian Communication Authority or whatever it was called, where they say, if we just only allow specific binaries that we have the hash for and know are good, then that would stop almost all malware. It would also stop every not approved application from working. But, you know, that's kind of the point. Uh, you know, the more secure you need to be, the more you need to only allow things that you really want. It's hmm. 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 a, a pretty comprehensive write-up they did. Yep. Like, dang. There's a reason why we talk about conspiracies so much. Yeah, they really do some but seriously they, even if you, uh if you look at the stuff about the USB dropper, they actually cite ESET's research on it. They're, you know... Yeah, they're competitors. They, they, yeah, they're, they're very, they, they list them as colleagues, not competitors, but, you know, they, they do acknowledge that good research happens elsewhere as well. There you go. All right, Alan. You know where else good happens? You know where else good is mm-hmm. also happening? That's IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and land on the techsnap page. That's where you go to support the show and maybe grab yourself a comprehensive guide to greasing the wheels up the chain to move to the best damn hardware vendor in the business. You got an open source workload? Trust me, you're going to want it on the IX Systems hardware. From the pre-sales experience all the way down to the very end, it is outrageously great. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and just... Take a little look around. See what we've been talking about. Look at some of their rigs, some of their hardware. And for you longtime listeners, guess what? You already knew it, but IX Systems just won themselves a little bit of an award. Now, it's called mm-hmm. the Press and Industry uh, – or the Best in the Biz Award by the Press and Industry and Analysts Group. Yes. The Best so in the Biz Award won, 2015. They won two different awards. They won the silver winner for the product line of the year hey. uh, for the enterprise storage line, the uh, TrueNAS and so on. And they got, uh, importantly, the silver winner for the most customer-friendly company of the year for a medium-sized company. Wow. It's out of, a, it's out of organizations worldwide mm-hmm. uh, and only unrecognizes uh, top companies, teams, executives, and products for their business successes as judged by established members of the press and industry analysis. That is really neat. Freenas gets a mention. Yep. Very, very cool. Also, up on their blog is the uh, Mission Complete stories, the best stories from November. Yes. We've been talking uh, about Yes. This. So for November, they gave away prizes. They got uh, $50 Amazon gift cards and uh, free NAS t-shirts. Uh, but I love this Ooh, first nice. one because it mentions TechSnap. Oh, right on. Very cool. So uh, Chris says, is, I've been an avid listener of Jupiter Broadcasting Positive Network, and I first learned about uh, FreeNAS and ZFS from the TechSnap show. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, that is what I wanted to be the backbone of my home network. He says he originally tried to piece together a FreeNAS box of what he had and spare parts and uh, gave me a good few test installs and something to play with, but it would have been suboptimal in performance had he actually used it. So he went out and uh, kind of looked at expanding it and going after that, uh, but ended up deciding to get a FreeNAS Mini. That's Amazon, awesome. I, I love that it was the uh, TechSnap viewer, too. I, was, I mm-hmm. was hoping somebody would submit. Yes. And said the, uh, the FreeNAS Mini performs flawlessly and still does, and it's filled with four 4-terabyte four Western digital drives. Uh, and, you know, uh, he's actually added a, a PCI SATA card to get four more drives. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. They have more information at ixsystems.com slash 
mission complete. Check that out. Give them your story. I think they're still taking submissions, so go give them your story. Yes, uh, for sure. For that, uh, make sure you send in your story, and uh, you know there might be a special prize for uh, the end of the year. Ooh, it's Christmas time after all. Oh, ho, ho, ho. check them out. Go to ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap. That supports. Get the your show story in. More. Yeah, yeah. Tell them how you accomplished a mission with. You know, ZFS, FreeNAS, FreeBSD, IX system, you know, anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Want to hear your story. Absolutely. About how you got something big done. Absolutely. Thanks to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Hey, Alan, since we're at the midway point here in this show, why don't we give a mention to episode 119 of the BSD Now show so people can start yes. their downloads. There be dragons, BSD dragons. Yes. Uh, that's to coincide with at least the next version of Dragonfly BSD. Mm. But we also had an amazing interview with uh, Paul Goyette, who's a uh, now retired NetBSD developer. Very cool. So uh, after working for a long time at DEC and Juniper and so on, he now basically does NetBSD development full time, uh, the joys of being retired. Yeah, yeah. Um, And he told us about a lot of cool things, including uh, making it more modular and a bunch of interesting things he's worked on over the years and a lot about, you know, why he worked on it and specifically mentioning, you know, (laughs) Unlike a lot of BSD people that worked at Juniper, his job was more um, release engineering and, and even customer support. So he didn't actually work on BSD at Juniper very much. Hmm. And he actually used working on BSD as his, you know, his therapy session uh, to deal with the stress of his, the, his day job that didn't involve that much BSD. <laughs> That's clever. I like it. Sounds like a very interesting yeah. chat. Episode 119 yeah, of the BSD Now program. You go get it. And then uh, by the time that's done, you'll be ready to watch it because TechSnap will be wrapping up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or maybe start a thread or subreddit at TechSnap.reddit.com. Our first email comes in from, wait, that's our last email. Our first email comes in from Robin in search of a backup solution. Hey, Chris and Alan, totally mad about the show. Thanks so much for creating such a useful, entertaining content. It's made a large difference in my technical life. Well, that's really cool. Thanks, Robin. So I have an odd one for you, though. I'm in charge of the technical end of a photography company. We have a very large uh, customer files. You know, I would imagine they probably do in photography. Uh, we have four terabytes of, on our VPS-owned cloud server that is hosted by Hetzner, I think is maybe? Hetzner, yeah. Hetzner in Germany, which is great in theory. We have a free NAS box in Dublin for storage of all the files. Galloway to files to own cloud, and then they are synced to Dublin free NAS. The, pro- the problem that I'm having is that own cloud doesn't really handle the files very well. I'm having... Uh, I'm having a time. I'm having a timeout. I'm having timeout problems, and also the MySQL server is complaining about too many connections dropping out. And then I have to restart the service to get it going again. I'm hoping there might be a way to solve this. Then I do an rsync to back up the raw to the uh, free NAS box, the raw files. And there's, oh, I bet these are diagrams, perhaps. Uh, I've been looking around other file sync solutions suggested on the show, especially sync thing. The problem is that I would have to the have to use the not delete function, and I can see this getting messy. Is there a better solution just to back up the Galloway machine and bypass the cloud system directly to a free NAS box? Many, many thanks. Keep up with the amazing content. Robin. What do you think, Alan? What do you think? Mm. 
So this, uh, I, I, I know. So he doesn't mention what the Galway system is. Or she. Robin might be a or she. Sorry, yes. Yeah. Um, ideally, if you had a free NAS, that was the primary storage of the files, and then a free NAS at the second location, then you can just set up free NAS replication between them. Especially since the files likely only change on one of the sides, right? Uh, you know, if the copy in Dublin is read-only, then it solves all your problems uh, with replication because it's a nice one way. Um, yeah, yeah, so own cloud and sync thing and so on, they tend to work okay, except if you have a large number of files or if the files are very large. When Robin refers to uh, sync thing, but uh, uh, what what was it that uh, was it the what was the problem with sync thing? Is there's the uh, non-delete oh, function. She, they want to archive so that deleted files don't actually get deleted. Uh, the, now, especially the problem that is that I would have to use shot. the not delete function, and I could see that getting messy. You know, that the not delete function, uh, so like you retains a certain amount of files, is you just set it just how many files you want. So 5, 10, you know, right there in sync thing in the in the web UI, and it's it's not that. I mean, it's not that well, bad, I mean. Depending what you're doing, I would assume that you never delete anything. Right. Well, I could see why if you had a really sound tested backup system, maybe you don't want to sync a bunch of stuff between machines all the time in the sync system. Maybe you, you know, so that right. way when a new well, machine I, comes I online. Mostly like if this, the point of this is to archive all the photos that you work on or whatever, that you would never delete a file. You would just add new ones constantly. Uh, I, I, so uh, I, uh, using sync thing and then on the target where sync thing is writing to, Using ZFS snapshots, then even if SyncThing deletes a file, if you use the snapshots to go back a week, you have exactly what were the files then. Uh, what do you think about? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see this. Uh, Robin mentions in here too that uh, the own cloud server isn't really handling a bunch of files. I'm having timeout problems, and also the MySQL server is complaining about too many connections. Dropping out and then I have to restart well, the service. It depends what the connection limit in the MySQL setup is, but I think the default is like 100. And if you're actually using 100, then something is stalling. Well, that would sound like OwnCloud to me. I, uh, uh, I mean, I had to abandon using OwnCloud file sync for media production because we almost lost a week's worth of content, and it was devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, I, I always prefer... The raw files in regular directories, maybe something like OwnCloud yeah. or something that might yeah. provide access to them or something. Yeah. But I want my files stored as files on a file system, so it can be ZFS. For me, it's sync thing. I don't want stuff in a database. It's sync thing or Dropbox, and I know that Dropbox has a bunch of its own downsides. So you'd have to you have to make sure you'd be making the right decision there. Uh, but for me, sync thing has been. SyncThing has been one of those open source projects that I started using and I bailed on and I said, I'm going to give this time to cook. I'm going to go back to BitTorrent Sync. I rode that horse for a while and uh, came back to SyncThing um, when LogMeIn bought LastPass. And, uh, or was it LogMeIn that bought LastPass? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I got to say, super impressed with SyncThing now. I really, yeah, I, I've, I've been really impressed with it. I swear I've heard that the FreeBSD... Cluster admin team uses the same thing to sync things between FreeBSD project servers. So that means they they beat on it a bit. That's got to be quite a bit of files. Yeah. Um, so yeah, your best bet then probably is replace OwnCloud with SyncThing. Yeah. Uh, you probably don't need the VPS then. Uh, and on the receiving set, the free NAS, when you have the SyncThing 
I think the sync thing there, you take snapshots of the resulting sync thing so that you don't have to use the not delete function. Yeah. Or maybe you set it, but set it to keep a small amount of files. Yeah. And then with the snapshots, you'll be able to go back and say, all right, give me what what the sync thing saw last week. Yeah. Not what it sees. That's today. a really good way to so do it. So you can get the old files. That's really solid. And Robin, if you want to expand on the sync thing challenges, because maybe we're not grokking it, but I think that sounds like a pretty solid solution. Uh, you can do a follow up email. I'll try to include it in the next yeah. show. All right, so Jesper writes in, and he says, Hi, Chris and Alan. I have a free NAS box in my home connected to the Internet through a PFSense box. I do a local backup of my free NAS machine, but I want to set up and do remote backups as well. Uh, my plan so far is to get a second free NAS box and install it in my in-laws behind their ISP's router. Now to my question. How can I, with the smallest impact on possible on the in-laws side, make ZFS replication send and receive work? One idea I had was to make the free remote free NAS box open up a VP, VPN tunnel to my PFSense machine. Thanks for the great show, Jesper. It sounds like he's definitely on the right track. So if you have the free NAS at your uh, in-laws' house, VP, uh, open a VPN whenever it's on uh, to your PFSense. Then when you, when it's set up, you ba- it's basically now on the LAN at your house as far as the uh, network is concerned. You know the router is going to take care of it. Uh, and then you just use the ZFS replication menus and setup that's built into FreeNAS, and that'll replicate it. And since the amount of bandwidth you have to upload at your house is less than what your in-laws will have for download, you will always max out the up of your connection before the down of their connection. So they should never know. You know, they, most people's connections are like you know. 100 by 5 or, or 50 by 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's always... Yeah, that's can, a good point. You can download so many times more than what you can upload Any, uh, that you won't be able to, to use up most of their connections, so you won't even interfere with their Netflix or something. Any crazy kids out there doing something like um, ZFS send over SSH, something like that? Is there, is, that is that's it, what the replication in FreeNAS will do. So he so, wouldn't have to use a VPN? I'm sorry, then I, I might have misunderstood. Well, uh he could do it where he's uh, port forwarded through his uh, in-laws router, so he could just do it over SSH. Okay, but the if he didn't want to do is, that, he could well, have the downside yeah. to that is his in-laws IP address will change from time to time because it's a cable or whatever, right? Yeah. So if he VP, if he has the free NAS at their house, VPN yeah. back to his house. Yeah. I guess then, a I guess a solution because, a workaround could be uh, the dynamic. There is dynamic dns updating support right, for free but he probably has less control over their router than he does his router yeah yeah his yeah. router is a pf sense right, right so it's easiest to have the yeah. a vpn from their house where they're the client yeah. and they connect to his house yeah where he can set up the dyn dns and know yeah. that it's working yeah and he can set up the port forward to let the vpn in yeah. or whatever yeah that makes sense and then so- over the vpn you just have regular ssh replication yeah so you can do it without the vpn but you know, if you kind of have it less control for whatever reason, then you yeah. have to go to your in-laws' house and fob with the router. Right. Plus, Whereas with the VPN, it always calls your house. The advantage, I think, the other big advantage to a VPN would be you could use that for more than just ZFS send and receive. Right. You could right. do remote management ex- of the free NAS you could, box. You yeah. could, and you could extend it such that um, you like NFS mount or something. So then your in-laws' TV can watch the movies off the free NAS at your house. <laughs> sure. Although if you're replicating the whole thing, they'll have a local copy. Of yeah, you can, or you but. could do – I mean, there, you could do the Plex on the same – I mean, there's a lot of ways you could do that. Get, get him a Roku for Christmas, let him stream off your Plex library, Bob's your uncle. 
Well, and the best part is if you're actually replicating everything, although you might decide you only want to replicate, you know, these two data sets and not all the videos because you only have so much upload bandwidth, right? Yeah. Um, it would mean that they would already have a local copy. So you wouldn't even have to NFS merit. Uh, but the other big thing with this is if you do your first sync uh, while they're connected over the LAN. Yeah. Because you know, you're going to be dropping terabytes of data. Maybe, yeah, that's a great get idea. Get it all synced up. And then because ZFS snapshots are incremental, what you have to send over the network and once you get it over to their house will be much, much less. That's a and yes, point. that's the best thing about ZFS is because you create these separate file systems, you can, you know, if you really think about it, you split up your data in such a way that you can decide, I, I want this you know, here's all my business files. I want those replicated. Here's all my personal tax files. I want these replicated. Here's all the family photos. I want those replicated. Here's, you know, all the downloaded episodes of TechSnap I have. I don't really need to back those up. I can always download those again, That's so true. I won't back those up. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'm going to reshuffle the order so that way we stay on the ZFS topic, and we'll save the worst story for the last one. John from Canada writes in about ZFS on the desktop. Hi, Chris and Alan. I have another ZFS-related question for Alan. I recently built a free NAS server, and I've having fallen in love with some of the ZFS amazing features. I was looking to set it up on desktop with ZFS using FreeBSD or possibly Arch Linux. I had a few questions about RAID controllers in motherboards. I have a Maximus Vi motherboard with an Intel Z87 Express chipset, and it says it has rapid storage technology 12, and it supports RAID 0, 1, 5, and 10. Does this mean that there is a built-in RAID controller in my MOBO? Is that a problem when using ZFS, seeing as the hard drives will be going through it? Or do they just mean it has the ability to use RAID? Also, I was planning on setting it up with SSDs and was wondering what is the best setup to be? Uh, is it okay to just use a single SSD or would that completely get rid of any of ZFS's air checking capabilities and benefits as it finds a problem and won't be able to fix it? Would it be best to get two SSDs and put them in a mirror? I'm sure you use ZFS on your desktop computer, so I was wondering what you did about these issues of using hardware, and if this is if it, uh, if using hardware this is not, that is not server grade, and how it has gone for you. As always, thanks for the great show. And John from Canada also asked about if you really need ECC, and the answer is no. Okay, Alan, the rest. So, um, most of the motherboards that have built-in RAID like that, it can be disabled. So, in your BIOS, when you're setting up disks, you can like it has like legacy mode or AHCI, which is the one you want, or RAID. And so, in your BIOS, you just set it to not the RAID one, and then the disks are just individual disks. Uh, and so as long as you don't set it up in RAID 0, 1, 5, or 10, it should be fine. Usually, you know, you just plug the drives in, and they show up in the operating system, and you're good. Uh, they mostly do that for motherboards so that it doesn't confuse users, where, they, you know, they have to go into a RAID manager. And yeah, you normally you have to turn it on. Yeah, so the motherboard one is easy enough to basically just turn off in the BIOS. Yeah, don't it use it. should be fine. Yeah, so don't use it, but it's... Not that you will need to go, you know, buy an LSI HBA or something to get access to your disks in ZFS. So it should be fine with ZFS as long as you don't actually use the RAID. Uh, and then about SSDs, so if you use just a single disk, you don't lose the error checking capabilities in ZFS. It will know if a block is corrupted or whatever. However, it won't be able to fix it. So yes, you want to use two SSDs mirrored together. There you go, because if one SSD has the issue, it'll take the good copy from the other SSD. But you still get the you still get the checksumming, you still get yep. that kind yeah, of you stuff. You still get checksumming even if you're only using You can one still disk. do a snapshot on yep. a, but you, you get everything in ZFS works with one disk, it just can't necessarily fix the problem. Right. Or, if, you know, if the problem is the entire drive stops working, yeah. then <laughs> you have no files. Yeah. So yes, you always need at least two drives. Is it possible uh, to become a mirror later? Yes. 
you can actually use ZFS add, no, attach. Mm. ZFS attach will add, because also if you have a two-disc mirror, you can actually make it deeper and say, I want three-disc mirrors, so that even if two of them die, it still works. Damn, it can read from all three at once? Yes. With SSDs? Super read speed. (laughs) Your write speed won't go up. Because it has to write yeah, all right, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But your read speed can get insane. Ooh. Now, if you have a database, imagine the awesomeness yeah. that is that. Yeah. Or well, imagine if you had three different banks, like the, those RAM storage cards. Like you had three different one of those or RAM. NVMEs. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, all right. Well, we're going to wrap it up with a war story from Mr. Anon. He wanted to remain anonymous, and he shall. He says, one of my customers was threatened with a DDoS attack last week. The attack started to hit an old legacy app and brought it down. The app was hosted in D.C., of course. The attack stopped, and the attacker wanted a few hundred BTC. He said if they didn't get it in a, by the specific date, the DDoS would start again, and the cost would go up by one Bitcoin an hour. We said that we would pay, but required a week to get a hold of Bitcoin. We spent that week migrating the business critical servers to the cloud and used a tricky DNS setup and braced for impact. Turned out, the attacker never attacked. I believe the entire thing was automated. When they say the targets have moved uh, to AWS IPs, they just skipped the attack and moved on to the next target. Entirely possible. They usually only have so much time for each person, so yeah. And why not automate it? Why not? Here's the Bitcoin address, send the money, maybe they get it, maybe they don't. Yep. And they maybe never have any intention of coming back ever. Yeah, just doing it so many people, they can't keep track of who's who. They just... Get yeah. as many bitcoins as they can and yeah. run and hide. That's insightful, Mister Non. Thank you. And I wonder if we won't be seeing some news stories about these kinds of things in the near future. Whatever. We have a news story about not denial of service, but ransom demands like that coming up in the roundup. There you go. We have a huge roundup coming up, actually. So let's get onto it. So thank you for sending your emails. We'd love to get your questions. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/contact. A wide range: networking, security, infrastructure, storage, uh, server operating systems, backup. All of it's very welcome. And uh, you can send it over to TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or just use the contact form or go to the subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, so that crazy music means other roundup of stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them, give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And this first one actually came from my co-host Wes from Linux Unplugged, uh, and it's a long article over at, at LWN, and it appears to be maybe a final fix for that Linux RAID issue we talked about a while ago. Developed by Facebook, they're calling it a journal for MD RAID. Uh, and I'll just I'll read a little bit of it because it's massive, and I think people probably want to check it out on their own. But the functionality developed at Facebook uh, is uh, a journal device, or sometimes referred to as a cache or a log device, to be configured with MD RAID 5 or RAID 4 or the RAID 6 uh, configuration with a journal in place, RAID 5 handling, which I thought actually this might not be what we were talking about earlier then. RAID 5 handling will progress much as it normally does, gathering... Uh, gathering write requests into stripes and calculating the parity blocks. Then, instead of being written to the array, the stripe is intercepted by the journaling subsystem and queued for the journal instead. The ri- if the write traffic and when the write traffic is sufficiently heavy, multiple stripes will be grouped together into a single transaction and written to the journal with a single metadata block listing the address of the data and parity. Once this transaction has been written, and if necessary, flushed to stable storage, the core RAID 5 engine is told to process the stripe again, and this time, the write-out is not intercepted. 
when the right to uh, the main array completes, the journaling subsystem will be told. Uh, it will be occasionally updated of its records where the journal starts so the data is safe on the array, uh, even if the array effectively disappears. Uh, and I guess this may or may not be addressing a, the issue we talked about before. I thought the issue we talked about, about before was affecting RAID 1. But, yeah, uh, so that was a bug in the uh, MD driver, and it's different. This one is more seems to try to make a software RAID with MD better than what you get with the hardware RAID from a controller card. Yeah, with a cache on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is this is like a software to, cache. Like what we need is some of the features of ZFS, but on any file system. I guess it's that's like, that works, but when it's integrated into the file system, it always works better. That is an you know, interesting like, approach, though. Uh, LSI sells a RAID controller card that has almost the same thing. They call it like uh, file vault. No, I forget what they call it. Uh, but basically, you have your. Uh, SAS read controller connected all your disks, and then it has a port to go to an SSD to act as a read cache like mm-hmm. in ZFS. Yeah. But because it's done at the read controller level instead of at the file system level, it knows less about what's actually going on, so it can't be as smart about it. So right. it's it just, works, just yeah. never quite as good. Yeah, it's just a, it's just going to be a dumb queue, and then, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so this this update is to try to make, you know, uh, RAID 5 more performant for, because... Facebook's workload involves usually writing huge amounts of data out for long-term storage mm-hmm. and some reading of it back, and that they made this more efficient by batching things together. I wonder, though, if there would be performance benefits uh, for uh, average Linux file systems like Extended 4 it or Butterfest. Basically, it's, it's not about the file system, but about the workload. Yeah. If your workload includes a lot of writes and reads in such a way that if instead of writing constantly and reading constantly... You did like batch up writes until you have two gigabytes of data to write, and then write it all yeah. out in one second. Well, yeah. during that one second, you basically do no reads, and and kind of interleave the reads and writes. You can get better performance out of a spinning disk. Hmm. Um, be, yeah. But it also means if you try to read something during the time where it's writing, your performance is balls. Yes, of course. And this I is why wanna... it's important in ZFS. You have the arc to keep all the files you're using a lot. Right. RAM, right. so that you can continue to use them during those writes. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if there's. Yeah, I'm going to be curious to see where this goes because I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there is a way to. Wouldn't it be interesting too if you could have its journal write to RAM, or whatever it's where oh, well, it's writing to? I think they talked about some uh, non-volatile storage in there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a long article, and people can dig into it more if they're interested. But, but it could be it an interesting development. It mostly seems like a bunch of half measures to try to get some of the features of ZFS, and it's like, well, you know, ZFS already works on Linux. You could just use it. And so <laughs> that's true. <laughs> All right. What about this massive flash update? 79 vulnerabilities, Alan. Yes. Uh, although 56 of them are used after freeze, although those can be dangerous. Um, but basically, Adobe says that of there are 79 vulnerabilities, 56 are used after freeze. Hmm. But uh, Adobe says that none of the patch vulnerabilities are being exploited publicly. So these apparently oh, are mostly nice. ones uh, that were disclosed to Adobe or Adobe found themselves and that none of them are currently being used by an exploit kit or anything. So they're preemptively fixing 79 of these holes. And I think a lot of this is related to uh, them teaming up with Google and Facebook and so on to try to beef up Flash Player and keep it from being mm-hmm. such a bane in our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also listed uh, a dozen memory corruption vulnerabilities, two heap buffer overflows, uh, a stack integer, and a buffer overflow. <laughs> And a security bypass and a type confusion vulnerability. Woo! Hey, oh, smorgasbord, everybody. Yeah. Hey, Alan, you like the way your SQL server is priced by Microsoft? Uh, oh, you skipped one. I did. 
Oh, we'll go ahead and take it. And it's not about SQL Server. It's just regular server. No, I know. They're, well, you, you, you killed my lineup. You killed it. What because they're pricing Microsoft Windows Server 2016 like they price SQL Server now. Oh. Uh-huh. You see. That's, uh-huh. that's kind of the whole story, Did you really. find the previous story, though? No, no. You could talk about it, and then I'll find it, because it's probably who ah. knows what order it's in. It's a corrupt story about uh, police getting busted trying to buy credit cards. Oh, I see. So, yep. yep. Uh, as part of an investigation, the police officers tried to buy stolen credit cards off one of the underground markets on the internet. And yeah, uh, sure. when they went to check out, they were greeted by this big No Pigs Allowed logo. <laughs> so somehow the underground uh, credit card market detected that this person was with law enforcement and wouldn't let them buy the credit card. Now law enforcement just needs to use Tor. See? Uh, Legal so reasons to they, use they Tor, have, everybody. They have apparently some indicators they use i don't know if it's you know certain ip addresses gotta be right or just certain behaviors or you know certain accounts you know if you've if you try to just show up and buy something and you haven't been around before what evidence they have but they definitely seem to have just like banks have you know fraud detection algorithms to figure out when uh the credit card's been stolen the stolen credit card people have uh, algorithms to figure out when you might be a cop and not let you buy the stuff. I'll tell you what's going to happen now. This has just become an excuse for cops to work from home. Well, I would come into the office, but they keep blocking our IP address, so I got to do it from home. I don't know if you'd want those people to figure out where you live. <laughs> well, there's that. There is that aspect to it. Yeah. That is true. Uh, is the next one the Windows one? Because we, yes. we don't really Sorry, need to. I, I blew all your no, it's fine. Stuff. That's pretty much it. Also, the other big thing is like the data center version and the standard version are going to have massive differences again. Yes. Yeah, so originally they did, and then they kind of like refined it and made it just more about unlimited VMs. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now they're good. So basically, what in like 2003 and so on, uh, Windows licensing was based on how many CPUs you had. Yeah. Because people only had one or two CPUs, right? Because you had one core per socket. And if you had one, if you had a rig that had more than that, you were getting the data center edition and you had money to burn. Well, I don't even think they had data center edition yet because you couldn't buy a server with more than two processors. Maybe I thought they had that for a while, but maybe they didn't. Maybe. Now they introduced it in 2000. 2008. They introduced data center edition in Windows 2000. Was it 2003? Yeah. But anyway. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Back then, you only ever had one core per uh, processor, so it was based on the number of pro- CPUs you had. Uh, so you had basically one, two, or four was really the only option unless you were buying a supercomputer. And then hyper-threading, and I think they made an exception and said, well, we'll make it sockets instead because you know, hyper-threading isn't really in a whole processor, so we won't charge you for it or something. But if you had an older version and you tried to install it with something with hyper-threading, you had to go in the BIOS and disable hyper-threading or pay for more CPUs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back then, the OS couldn't really use them anyway, so I don't know if it was much good. Yeah, it's true. And then, basically, once all of a sudden everybody had two or four cores per processor, Microsoft's like, okay, okay, we'll charge based on sockets, because otherwise we're going to, you know, the price of Windows will shoot way up and everybody yeah. will be mad. Yeah. But now they're like, well, now, you know, you can get 16 or 24 cores on a single CPU, or you could have two four-core CPUs. Mm-hmm. And we would charge you a lot more for the one of those that's worse. So they will base uh, charge you based on the number of cores. Interestingly, you can buy packs in was it like Eight. four cores at a time only or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, they have a two core pack, and they also have an. They do have. Uh, well, I'm actually not sure about that. Uh, Windows Server 2016 has a minimum of eight cores, so you have to buy four two core packs, and. Probably regardless of how many actual CPUs you have. You see, here, 
okay, here's you got you know what my complaint is. This is just too stupid. This is that we in 2016. It is the age of this is the opera. There, I just I what what is their strategy for charging this much with this complicated of a scheme for an operating system that it has FreeBSD and Linux out there as competitors that are. S- very simple because to understand in licensing the terms. Giant, only giant institutions still buy Windows Server 2016. I guess so. It just seems and they will just pay whatever. Seems like they're going more complicated when the trend has been to simplify this and and the cost yeah, structures. Yeah, well, because they, they basically anybody who's still using Windows Server 2016 is because they're locked into it. They bought into the whole ecosystem. They they use Exchange and they can't ever not use Exchange. Active Directory is the core to yeah. their yeah. That's and true. so that's everybody know. probably. They're, they're bent over by Microsoft, and there's nowhere for them to go. Really. Here they come. So uh, Steam is taking some extra measures. Uh, Steam tightens trading security amid 77,000 monthly account hijacks. Uh, traded items will be held for days now unless you have two-factor authentication. It's uh, just part of Valve's attempt to sort of So that if uh, someone gains access to your account, uh, they can't. If they trade away all your stuff, you can get it back. Yeah, which I guess is... Probably the number one reason why people hijack accounts, huh? Yeah, is to trade away the games and, and give them to themselves for free or sell yeah. them, whatever. Yeah. All right, Mr. Jude, the next one on the roundup is a PDF, everybody. Yes. Uh, so this one is a security audit of Telegram, the messaging app that oh, cool. happy with. Well, to <laughs> uh, a degree. And they found a CCA insecurity in the MT Proto. So MT Proto is the encryption system that Telegram uses or came up with or whatever. And they like... Yeah, it's not as secure as if they just used standard crypto. They uh-huh. really shouldn't have rolled their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, found that if you take the ciphertext, you can change the ciphertext, but it will still be decryptable, which is a problem. Uh, but they don't—they didn't manage to find a way to actually decrypt the message. Jeez, well, this Chrome has the worst highlighting system ever. It really is just such no, a joke. PDFs are always like that. I know, but it's, the, it's so bad. Part. No, it's not every PDF viewer. No, not every PDF. Used. No, not every PDF. It's Chrome's particularly the, bad. The one, the one in Firefox is the same thing. The one in Fox is the same spaz. thing. Look at this. It's so spastastic. Uh, so yeah. It, so this this sort of underscores a point that's been made a couple of times on this show: is when you roll your own crypto, it's it's almost it's always inevitably bad. bad. Don't do it. Um, you know, we've seen people use like ECB because they don't know not to. It's like, well, if you don't know not to, what are you doing with the encryption? And yet, and yet. Uh, just last night on Unfilter, I played a clip of a U.S. senator saying, our biggest fears have come true. We are terrified. ISIS has developed their own encrypted communications app. They are communicating in their own app now, and there's nothing we can do. And if that was true, that would be wonderful. It would be wonderful for ISIS yes, to develop their own chat app. Because it this shows be you why. Enough. Even something it's, like Telegram. If you really want to be scared, it would be ISIS has started using GBG. Right, yeah. That's that's the horror story. Yeah. If they invented their own crypto, it's like, ooh, look, rot fourteen. <laughs> so, what is the essential vulnerability? Did you were able to boil it down? Uh, you'd have to read the PDF. I didn't yeah. read the whole PDF. I was just lo- at the top, kind of. Yeah, I was just looking at it. It says, from a high level point of view, Telegram allows two devices to exchange a long term key using Diffie Hellman key exchange. Afterwards, the two devices can use this key to exchange encrypted messages using a symmetric encryption scheme known as MT Proto. In a nutshell, the MT Proto is a combination of a lesser known mode of operation, namely the Infinite Gabriel extension, or IGE, a short term key de- uh, deviation mechanism, and an integrity check of the plain text. Uh, and then he breaks out the protocol. But I don't really. Wait, so you that that was just a description. Of yeah, the what empty protocol is, or the empty proto, which is I guess. Apparently, you can substitute the last block for a different one, I... and it doesn't have 
uh, he says there's two IMP attacks. Is. So empty proto. He says there's two attacks, uh, uh, and we assume the uh, reader will be familiar with some of these basic notions. So yeah, this they say they're only theoretical, paper, and they use a bunch of acronyms that I don't even know. So. Once again, we stress the attacks uh, are only theoretical in nature, and we don't see a way of turning them into full plain text recoveries. Yet we believe these attacks. Uh, they say well, this is the underscore why designing your crypto is very good, rarely a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to read the whole thing to grok it, I guess. Yeah, and completely. you might actually have to look up some of the terms and cross-reference the papers they cite and so on. It's really not meant for regular consumption. They go on. They do kind of, you know, bang the drum over and over again about not rolling your own encryption. Yes. But uh, they don't actually say exactly what it is. But so that was so the so the intelligence well, agencies can, would only be so can, lucky if they use Telegram. They add. You can add stuff to the end of the message, and it still decrypts properly, which means that you could. If you knew of a flaw in the program, you could trick it into trying to decrypt stuff that was not an encrypted message, but you know some code you wanted it to run or whatever. So, Alan, the next story in the roundup, this uh, Krebs article about the uh, seventy-plus security holes that Microsoft and Adobe each plug. He goes on later on in this article to talk about uh, some good tips to just sort of deflashify your life, including some extensions that he likes and other Having things. a separate browser for using Flash, yeah. uh, using click-to-play so that Flash doesn't run on everything but only on, you know, the thing you're trying to watch. If you're trying to watch a video or whatever, you click and it runs, it's fine. But, you know, killing all the Flash ads is great. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're usually the vector that the stuff comes through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do we have here about Hashcat? Hashcat. Yes, so uh, OCL Hashcat is, you know, basically a password-cracking hashing mm-hmm. thing that uses video cards. It's very good. But uh, it recently got a mode to be able to attack TrueCrypt volumes. Hmm. Uh, and the, this particular user, Atom, on the uh, forum well, here, mm-hmm. uh, has devised a way to... Because um, TrueCrypt can let you pick from three different hashing algorithms, AES, Serpent, and Twofish, and then three different hashing algorithms, uh, RIPE, MD160, SHA-512, or Whirlpool. Uh, and more importantly, it has what's called cascaded encryption, where you like take your data, encrypt it with AES, and then encrypt it with Twofish, and then encrypt it with Serpent or whatever, right? Mm-hmm, it's a mess. Uh, but basically, in OCL Hashcat, for the cracking of it, they've found a way where you can crack all of those with only running the key derivation thing one or three times instead of all eight times. So it turns out when you do the cascaded encryption, you when you lengthen the output of the key derivation function, uh, it turns out the second and third blocks are always the same. Uh, The first block is always the same no matter how long you derive the key for uh, with the same password. And so if you just derive the... So that's the part that takes the longest is running the KDF to figure out when you take the user's password and turn it into the really long key you're going to use for the actual encryption. And so... That's the part that takes the longest, which is how it's supposed to be, right? And the actual encrypting and decrypting is actually fairly fast because that's what you want. Once, you've, once you know the password and you've decrypted the volume, you want to be able to write encrypted data and read it back really fast. Uh, so basically, they found a way to do that work uh, once for each of the three uh, first ciphers. Uh, so basically, if you figure it out for AES Two-Fish Serpent, mm-hmm. that key that you derived, if you use just the first third of it, will let you decrypt the AES-only version. Hmm. And if you use the first and second part, the AES and two-fish part, that lets you get the double-cascaded one 
and then you can use all three parts to get the triple. So if you just calculate all three possible combinations of the triple one, you can use those three derived keys to try all eight possible combinations. Uh, and so basically, instead of having, uh, because the TrueCrypt volume doesn't have a header that tells you what the encryption mechanism is, right? even if you're the real TrueCrypt program, it basically just tries all the different modes with the right password until it sees which one actually decrypts the data. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, so as an attacker, that, that's that much more work you have to do because you have to, to run the key derivation on each one of those. So this basically, to try all eight different modes, you only have to run the KDF three times instead of eight times with this optimization. Hmm. And that's, I think, included now in OCL Hashcat 1.37. Uh, so you can, they have the tools to start brute forcing TrueKit volumes using video cards. And there's a detailed explanation here on the forums of how it works. It is very fascinating one, Alan. Thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that with us. And uh, we have uh, a link to that. Q5Sys found that one. I Thank you, Mr. Sys. I, and we have a link in the uh, roundup uh, for that as a good one. Uh, so uh, one of the things that was in that big batch of patches that we haven't talked about yet from Microsoft, it looks like they have – I didn't know they do this, but I guess they sometimes patch the Xbox. What, what the hell's going on here? The no, Xbox no, they revoked the certificate that for xboxlive.com. So they have a, a wildcard certificate ah, for anything.xbox.com or xboxlive.com. And it turns out the Microsoft internal IT people accidentally leaked the SSL certificate for that domain, meaning Ooh. that anyone that got a copy of it could pretend to be the real xboxlive.com and do a man-in-the-middle attack. Hmm. And since people actually spend money on xboxlive.com, you could steal credit cards and all kinds of bad things could happen. So as part of the Patch Tuesday, they forced a revocation of that certificate to every machine that installs the patch hmm. so that they won't trust the old certificate. Good. So that little heads up, actually. And they've had to uh, reissue the certificate with a new key. And they never actually came out and described how the key got leaked, but it did, and they revoked it and basically blacklisted it as part of the Windows update. So uh, a lot of coverage in Unfiltered this week about the push to put Backdoor into encryption. Talked about it last week on this show. We talked about it last week on Filter. It's been going on and on, crossing both shows because it seems to be like hitting the technical vector and the political vector. And you have a piece over here uh, that is titled The Crypto Warrior. Matt Blaze understands why politicians want a backdoor in your device and why it'll never work. So for those that don't know, Matt Blaze is the guy that worked at AT&T and developed the uh, encrypted file system and a bunch of other stuff. And happened to be the guy that, while working at AT&T, figured out the, how to break the Clipper chip, which was the 1990s version of this backdoor in crypto that the FBI and NSA was trying to push on people. Mm. So it was basically going to go ahead and, they, and the government was going to have a backdoor in all crypto right? until Matt Blaze figured out how to exploit it himself and get access to stuff. And that basically killed the Clipper chip idea and made sure it never happened. Uh, and so this is an interview with him over at uh, Politico's The Agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, so after all the backstory and so on, they actually get to an interview and talk about it. Uh, I also want to mention, just to follow up for Robin, that Ike in the chat room mentioned that uh, that was his solution to move data, was sync thing and then use ZFS for the snapshots that you had brought up. So mm-hmm. just a little bit of follow-up. Uh, this gets my goat every time we talk about it. The FBI admits it is using stingrays and zero-day exploits 
as uh, it does its cyber work. So there you go. We finally have so it the officially real question on. There is where did they get the zero day exploits? Are they buying them from Vupen and what's that? Evans Zerodium? Probably. Yeah, probably. And how much taxpayer money are they wasting spending on these? buying these zero days to use them against taxpayers. The FBI acknowledged for the first time officially that it is using zero days. Uh, they say, what is the greater good to be able to identify a person who is threatening public safety or alert the software makers to a bug that if unpatched could leave consumers vulnerable? How do we balance that, she said? That is a constant challenge for us. And they're constantly doing it wrong. <laughs> uh, she added that hacking computers is not a favorite FBI technique. It's frail, she said. As soon as a tech firm updates the software, the tool vanishes. It's clearly not reliable in a way the traditional wiretap is, she said. Plus, you know, it takes work every time. Yeah. Plus, we got to keep buying all those dirty uh, exploits from all those dirty hackers. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. I like this next title. Cloud is outsourcing, but it's not outsourcing as it was. What? <laughs> so it's, you know, lots of lots of IT departments like to think that oh, using the cloud for something isn't outsourcing. We're not doing that. That's dirty. Uh, but it really is. And yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Like right. one of the Talks things, about- one of the popular things I did as a contractor is came in and replaced people's Exchange servers with an out, you know, with an offsite. We didn't call it cloud hosting back then. Uh, right. But we were taking it's Exchange just a servers. Hosted exchange. Yeah, right? we we call it, that's actually legitimately what we call it was hosted exchange. And uh, Microsoft got in on that early, too. Uh, but we were rolling it up before Microsoft made it a thing. And people didn't want to manage Exchange servers anymore. They didn't want well, to have dedicated... Thing is that Microsoft actually promoted that whole as a business. Like, they had a license model where mm-hmm. you paid like, yes. per account or something. Yeah. And then one day, they just, Microsoft decided, hmm, if we hosted this ourselves, we could just make all this money directly. Yeah. <laughs> all these Microsoft partners out of business. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. All those partners can sell support for our yeah. cloud platform because we're Microsoft. Right, going to support shit. Yeah, yeah. It's not much better with the Google Apps situation yeah. either. Yeah, it's an interesting anyway, point though. Interesting article. Mm-hmm. Check it out if you're interested. In- all right, so let's talk about this next one coming from the Daily Dot. The UAE, uh, after asking the UAE bank for three million in ransom, hackers dumped tens of thousands of customers' transactions history online. Yes. So InvestBank in the UA- United Arab Emirates uh, was apparently compromised and the hacker demanded $3 million in bitcoins uh, or he would dump all the transaction records of the customers that he stole online. Wow, there's a and, consistent bitcoin theme this uh, this week's yeah. episode. And the, the bank refused to pay because they're like, we're not going to be ransomed here. Uh, and so the attackers dumped tens of thousands of customers' records online, including... Uh, what their account balances are, how much they owe on their visas, and uh, you know, full transaction histories on accounts and so on as a series of zip files. Uh, one of the interesting things is uh, they go in the article that the files that you download are hosted on the website of a basketball team or something. So <laughs> he, the, he hacked the server and used it as the data. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> hey, free bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's talk about... The server administrator of the basketball website could not be reached for comment. <laughs> it's like, well, he's obvious. It seems that there isn't one, and that's why the server got hacked. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, uh, but the interesting thing here is that it, off, it it makes sense to me, honestly, that a bank would rather lose the money or, you know, in this case, it wasn't even money. Yeah. They'd rather lose a little bit of face than actually get a reputation as being one that pays ransom because otherwise they'd just be paying ransoms constantly for the rest of the 
Now, don't pretend you're surprised. Cisco's warning of vulnerabilities in routers. Uh, it says it's... Uh, and use, its data center platform. Yeah. Uh, they suffer from vulnerabilities, including a critical vulnerability. Mm. Yes, and there's also one where there's uh, a built-in account you don't know about with a static password and SSH key or something like that. Yeah, an undocumented account in the software which has default and static password that cannot be changed or deleted. Hmm. It's like, yeah, we'll patch that in. There's it's also like, a problem well, in why there. Why was that in there in the first place? And why wasn't it fixed the last 10 times you've removed static Oh, yeah, there's that. There, yeah, no kidding. There's also a flaw in the Apache Commons, in a, in a, in a Patch and Commons collections library. Uh, and there's a Java one and a bunch yeah. of other ones. Yeah. There's a whole slew there. And there's, uh, at the bottom, there's a list of routers and modems that are problems and so on. Yeah. Uh, but the big thing there is just uh, a Cisco sending out the warning ahead of time before the patch is even available, uh, which is kind of, you know, get ready to patch your Cisco gear. Uh, it's kind of nice, I guess. It, for, for some of them, they have workarounds that you can do now so that you won't get exploited until the patch comes out. Uh, okay. So on. Well, yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, getting getting the information out there is always good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this kind of goes along our discussion of CryptoCat. I mean, Telegram. I mean, name any sort of brew-your-own-crypto mobile app. This article over at eWeek says more than, more than 80% of mobile apps have encryption flaw, according to a new study. They have flaws in their encryption implementation. Uh, and that was... Uh, so I'm trying to find the name of the company that did it, but I don't see it on here. Uh, Vericode did State of Software there you Security. Go. Yeah. And uh, they summarized the results of application security tests conducted and found that the encryption issues undermine data protection on more than 87% of Android applications and 80% of iOS applications. On the website, there's often SQL injection vulnerabilities, which affected 64% of applications written in Microsoft's legacy ASP pages, 60, 62% of cold fusion apps, and 56% of PHP applications. What's had the funny problems. is, when was the last time there was a release of cold fusion? Still used, like, man. Like, I know it's still used everywhere, but by what? Like, at least, can you still do people get it? write new apps in it, or are, <laughs> or are they just maintaining apps from like the year two thousand? Yeah, legacy stuff. Oh, apparently the last stable release was Cold Fusion eleven point zero point zero point two eight nine eight two two from April twenty ninth to twenty fourteen, which is nineteen months ago. I didn't know there was that new version, so maybe it's not quite as. Terrible as I thought. Something tells me they could Which probably... Which is interesting. That's the last stable release, but apparently there's such thing as Cold Fusion 13. Oh, it never came out. Okay. Oh, it's going to be the new... It's going gonna, it's gonna to fix everything. It's going to fix everything. <laughs> Tell me about this uh, This uh, HTTPS status code to report legal obstacles. What is this? This is a draft of an internet engineering task force that would basically define a new um, HTTP status code, you know, like 404 yeah. and so on. Uh, for when you can't access this content because it's been censored or you're not legally allowed to have it or whatever. I don't know if this would extend to we don't have the license to show you this video in your country or whatever, but hmm. uh, it would be uh, HBD 451, unavailable for legal reasons, uh, which I suppose makes sense for um, you know when YouTube won't let you watch a video because you live in Germany or whatever. What's interesting is it will also uh, has a meta header called link, which then would have a link to the actual legislation and would say, this is what legislation is actually blocking you from viewing this, hmm. which is an interesting approach. It's like, here, we'll include a link to the law or takedown notice or whatever is forcing us to not show you this. Uh, uh, the interesting thing is if things are taken down by governments, they will often have some, you know, something like a, uh, a gag order or something that says, you can't say that we made you take this down or whatever, right? 
I don't know. For some reason, it just kind of makes me. It, it, it's kind of like when uh, when the HTML5 spec started to include DRM, that it sort of just made it part of the spec to have content blocked, to have special privilege content. I don't know. I guess that's the way it is. Well, but the, the advantage to this is, you know, if you're writing an app or something, you'll be able to tell that's what's happening easier. Yeah. No, I know. I I, I understand because it's happening. It's nice to have a standardized error code for people. But uh, all right, tell me about this because you know. Yeah. What we need is just a change in the way this is all handled on the internet because it's a worldwide internet. Uh, But on this worldwide internet, there are millions of old devices connected with flaws, Alan. Well, the interesting thing is not all of them are actually old. They just happen to include old software with old bugs. So, yeah, millions of embedded devices, including routers, smart TVs, and cell phones, still have not patched the uh, UPMP or Universal Plug and Play bug from 2012. Uh, when they did a scan, they found 326 apps on the Google App Store, uh, including some very popular apps with millions of users. And uh, the problem is, you know, when they build these smart TVs or whatever, they grab a version of, you know, the UPMP source code for the, from the open source project from either the last version of the thing they built or, you know, some SDK from a vendor or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they end up with, like, a, a five-year-old version of the software and you know even when they release a new tv they're like oh we're just using the same old software we're not going to update the version of upmp that might break our code it's like well you're shipping a vulnerability that's been fixed since 2012 in all of your new stuff you know i'd be surprised if any of the things that are vulnerable actually were manufactured before 2012 but yeah, Trend Micro says there's up to 6.1 million smart devices that contain vulnerabilities that we've had a fix for since 2012. Hmm. Including, the interesting one was the number of apps that bundled that code. Oh. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Yep. Jeez, this is, this is... this is I don't want to get into a rant, but that's a soapbox of mine. Same with, the, same with the home routers, all that kind of stuff. Internet of Things is going to be terrible. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we come near the end of the roundup with... Seven signs you're doing DevOps wrong. Yes. And I love how number one is you have to buy it. <laughs> you need to buy the DevOps. The IT departments need stuff to operate. Uh, it's like, yeah, DevOps is a way of doing things, not a product that you can buy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you equate software and tools to DevOps. Right. Again, it's a, buying, what's that thing called that you use now, the collaboration software? Slack. Slack. Paying for Slack doesn't give you DevOps. Right, right, right. It's a tool, but that's not what DevOps means. Yeah, yeah. Or, or uh, you use checklists or runbooks to manage code deployments. It's not right. DevOps. Because the idea is that with DevOps, it's automated and happens constantly, which brings us to number four. You release new code to production maybe once every few months or once a year or less. It's like, well, if you're doing DevOps, you should have new code constantly. Hmm. All right, and then number but five. Part of the relation to that is if you consider failure unacceptable, it's like, well, then it's not DevOps, right? Because if you're not constantly deploying your latest code, then because you don't want to have problems, you know, yeah, you have to deploy the latest code in order to find the problems to fix them. You blame others for system problems. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you know, you have to take responsibility. But I think number seven was the biggest one. Your developers and your operations group look like two completely separated grain silos. Right? Yeah. If if it's if they're separate people that are at odds with each other or blaming each other for things, then it's not DevOps. I think that's a good one. All right, let's talk about DN42, a big dynamic VPN. 
Yes. Uh, so I found this the other day, and I found it quite interesting since it's some stuff I would like to learn a bit more about. Huh. But basically, it's a giant VPN, uh, which allows, uh, allows you to use internet techniques like BGP, uh, who is database, DNS, etc. Participants connect uh, to each other using network tunnels like GRE or OpenVPN or IPsec or Tink or whatever, uh, and exchange routes uh, using the BGP or Border Gateway Protocol. Uh, and basically... There's this range of IP addresses you're allowed to use, and you get a private AS number. Like if you were on, you know, if you were a big backbone or something, you would have an AS number. But they have basically a private set of them that you can use on this VPN to just learn how it works. Neat. And they provide a number of services on the network uh, that are only available from within DN42 or whatever. And they also note that you can use DN42 to interconnect with other networks like Chaos VPN and a few other ones or using it to link hackerspaces uh, across the world between each other so that, you know, if you have people in two different hackerspaces, they can work on something without having to deal with the NAT and so on that would normally be in the way. They can actually create a routed private internet to experiment with. That is really cool. Good mm-hmm. find, Alan. Good find, son. Good find. And then we come to an end in the roundup with a tweet <laughs> by uh, by the Guru, Guru GP. Guru GP? The Grug. The Grug. All right, I'll go with uh, so yes, espionage and philosophy combined in this deep examination of signals and signifiers. What makes a beer a beer? <laughs> you want to read that story? In, uh, I'll read the highlighted part here. In one operation, we dropped money for an illegal in a, data, in a dead letter box. And as a signal to him, we left a large bent nail on a windowsill in a public laboratory. The answering signal showing that the money had been collected was supposed to be the top of the beer bottle placed on another windowsill in the same building imagine our consternation when we found a bottle top in the right place but from a bottle of a gin of a ginger beer (laughs) was this the same thing was the signal adequate or did it mean something different (laughs) i don't know i don't know even though it was past midnight we brought zaisev into the discussion and there we sat uh in the small hours of the morning, a gaggle of KGB officers anxiously debating whether or not ginger beer counted as beer. <laughs> None of us knew what this stuff was. I remembered in uh, one of the autobiographies of Karl Marx, he described how he bought ginger beer for children in Highgate. We certainly did not sound alcoholic. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the end, we decided that the signal was good and we were right for the illegal had gotten his money. There you go. Espionage and philosophy combined in this deep examination of signals and signifiers. What makes a right. beer so a it's beer. all about, you know, they have the dead drop and there's a signal whether or not they got the contents. And then it's like, you know, the signal was leave a beer bottle cap. But if you left a Coke bottle cap, they're like, well, is it just because you couldn't find a beer bottle? Or did you mean... Is that a message? That some we kind. didn't actually get yeah. it? Or like ginger beer is like, yeah. so non-alcoholic beer, does that mean you got some of the money but not all of it? <laughs> or does it mean you got the money but you need more? Yeah. That, what, yeah. what does it mean? <laughs> that is a bit confusing. You had to and, roll you know, you could, In computer security, we deal with this kind of stuff a lot. It's like, oh, well, we, we found that the attacker did this, but does that mean that they also broke in over here? Or right. you know, you're just trying to extrapolate more information than maybe was meant to be communicated mm-hmm. or you know it, it, does that mean there's more here or not 
That's pretty good. We got links to all of that in the show notes. If you guys want to see that, or maybe retweet it, or read it for yourself, you can find that. Everything we've talked about is pretty much chronologically listed in the show notes over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Just look for two twenty or two forty four, I should say. Don't forget the uh, uh, Teespring.com slash Last US and Last EU are wrapping up, and we're also giving out swag if you're a Patreon subscriber. So some good stuff going on. We'll have some live stuff next week uh, over at JBLive.tv, which starts at one p.m. Pacific, which is. 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Pow. Also over at jblive.fm for the audio. Now, here's the thing. Uh, we will have something special for the last two weeks of December. So technically, next week is our last live episode of the year. Now, that it's not our last episode of the year, but it's our last live episode of the year next week. So it would be really great if you could join us. Just go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time zone. Don't forget, you can also participate in the content of the show over at techsnap.reddit.com. And last but not least, we love your emails, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. All right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.